Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Back in 1820, long before the U.S. Civil War, there was an acknowledgement in the United States that some states permitted slavery while some did not. The north was considered free land. The south was considered what would have been considered slave states. As the United States continued to expand west, the settling, of course, U.S. history has the, the settlement, uh, U.S. being first settled in the northeast, then it settled down into the southeast, and then it started to expand west. What was of concern to the United States government was balance of the balance of power between the slave states and the free states. Because as the U.S. developed, it was a less centralized form of government and was more state-run state government. So these, these the individual states had and continued to have uh, power in how, in how their government is run. And what was important then was for a relative balance between those states that were considered free states and those states that were considered slave states all really revolving around economic reasons. The answer, as states continued to apply for statehood as to whether they would be free states or slave states, revolved around a certain parallel, certain parallel of longitude or latitude that was latitude 36 degrees and 30 minutes. I've had it nicely up on a, on a display here. I'll tell I'll try and get that to show around during the after-sermon discussion. But if you're familiar with the geography of the United States, right between Kentucky and Tennessee and underneath Virginia, there's a nice little line that, that is developed where it's a natural division between north and the south. That was where parallel 36 degrees, 30 minutes was. And it started out between Virginia and North Carolina and extended between Kentucky and Tennessee and underneath Missouri and then continued out over Colorado, what we would know today as Colorado. But back in 1820, the states only went as far as the Mississippi River. And at that point, Missouri was not yet a state. But both Missouri, down here in the central, and Maine, which would be up here, up in the far northeast, had both applied for states' rights. Maine was breaking off from Massachusetts and was applying to, to be a state. And Missouri, down here in the, in, the, in the central U.S., would have been the furthest state west at that point. But as fate would have it, Missouri, about 98% of Missouri, was above this parallel line. So it would have been in what was, according to the law, had to have been a free state. But what that would have done, that would have had two free states added to an already evenly split union. Which now would have, which now would have brought in uh, imbalance to the balanced free slash slave status that was that was important at this point in the development of the United States. But there was enough of Missouri, just a fraction of it, below this parallel line, with a whole bunch of cotton farmers that were very important to the the economy of Missouri at that time that had some influence that a compromise was, was reached to allow Missouri to enter as a slave state 
above this parallel line, thereby allowing Maine to enter as a free state and now preserve the balance between free state and slave state status as the United States now continued to expand and added these two new states to their union. This line continued to be important throughout the Civil War. In fact, when uh, the, the map that I had clearly shows that there were sympathetic states lying above this line that supported the South, supported the rebel cause during the Civil War. But they were forced to remain free states by this law that had existed with this parallel line that had been drawn and adopted as the boundary between the free and the slave states. But what had happened was these states, the two or three states that were above that parallel line, they developed parallel governments. So while they remained officially free states, they also had parallel governments running alongside uh, in that state that supported the rebel cause. Freedom versus servitude has been part of man's makeup going back many, many centuries, long before, long before the U.S. Civil War. Servitude, slavery, was an issue that has been part of our existence as, as mankind far, far back into our history. Let's go to Matthew 6. Matthew 6. A couple of sermons ago when we were reviewing the one another verbs, the many characteristics that define what it means to be a follower of God, we came upon this one that said, asked us as children and followers of God to serve one another. And what we saw when we looked at that verb was it is the same verb that means to be a slave to. So it's interesting here that Jesus Christ in Matthew 6, as he begins his ministry and kicks it off here with this Sermon on the Mount, in verse 19 tells us, again, Matthew 6, verse 19, part of the Sermon on the Mount as Christ begins his ministry, talking to his small group of disciples up in the mountains. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your heart is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And then he finishes up the thought here in verse 24 with, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You, can't, you cannot serve God and mammon. Again, this is part of the basic teachings of Jesus Christ. As we've noted on several occasions, he kicks off his ministry with the Sermon on the Mount, what we've called the Sermon on the Mount. You can't find that verbiage anywhere in Scripture. But it acts as an introduction to the next three and a half years of his ministry on all the topics he would discuss. And part of the Christian walk involves service. There's no way around that. That is, we can... We won't take the time to go through too much of that today, but part of the Christian walk involves service. And we've seen this 
in our recent review of the one another verses. One of the many, many things we are asked to do to become like Christ, to put on the character of God, is to serve. And here in verse 24, it indicates that service requires a master. We are serving, when we serve, the one to whom the service belongs is the master. Which begs the question, as Christ sort of develops this thought here, that we can't serve two masters, that you we can only serve one. You serve one or you serve the other. Begs the question, are we really free? Are we really free? So what I'd like to do today is take a look at this concept of freedom through the lens of service, sometimes referred to in Scripture as slavery. But let's not get we, we, let's not get caught up in how we understand slavery in terms of how we define it today politically and historically over the last two, three, four hundred years. Let's look at it biblically through, and look at this concept of freedom through the lens of service and ask the question, as children of God, as those who have given their lives to Jesus Christ, are we really free? Are we free? Let's go to Luke 16. As we begin, Luke 16, and we see here that Christ expands on this initial teaching. When we consider the Sermon on the Mount, and that it is an introductory, an introduction to Christ's ministry, what we find are the topics that he covers in the Sermon on the Mount are expanded upon throughout the course of the rest of his ministry. And we see that here in Luke 16, where he is... He's taken that small concept that we read back in Matthew 6, and he's expanding upon that here with the parable of the unjust servant. So we'll pick it up here in verse 1 of Luke 16. He also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship. For you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, that they may receive me into their houses. So he's planning here. He's thinking here that the master is going to come down on him. He's not happy with his service. So he needs to figure out what he's going to do. He's not in shape to do the hard work that he's asking of the, the servants that, that work for him. He's got too much pride, admittedly too much pride, to beg for help. So he's not trying to set himself up. So what happens? He loses his job as a master. I need, he, and he, he comes up with a plan here to work with those who owe the master money as a manager. He's mid-level manager here. He's going to work with those who owe him money, and we're going to pick that up here in verse 5. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? So he, sa- so he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation and the sons of light. And I say to you, 
continues in verse 9. Make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the right unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters. Again, this concept, this teaching that came out in Matthew 6, he's now expanding upon here. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So as we take a look at this parable and the subsequent teaching from Christ, what we see is we see a mid-level manager who was really serving his own interests out of fear of the unknown. So he's worried out of fear that his future is unknown, his ability to feed his family, his ability to provide for his needs. And he's hedging his bets by playing both sides. He still is acting as a, as a manager for his master, but he's hedging his bets by being good to those who owe the master money. Just in case things don't work out, I'm going to hedge my bets and play both sides. If the master fails me, then I have a fallback position because he admittedly couldn't do the work that he was asked to oversee. So he wants a fallback position. The master, when we see here, verse 8, the master commended the unjust steward. He's really, he's not approving his actions. The master isn't approving his actions. Rather, he acknowledged the prudency, the slyness, the slickness that he was displaying, although misguided, obviously, in protecting his interests. Christ's teaching here is that you cannot serve two entities. We must choose. And if we don't choose the master, we are serving our own self-interest. And he breaks that down for us here in saying we cannot choose God and mammon. Mammon being finances, mammon being uh, serving the self, our own self-needs. See, the manager wasn't really interested in the people he was giving a break to. He was interested in himself. He was using them as a fallback position in case the master was, was going to fire him. He would have a fallback position because now they owed their improved status. Their debts were, were minimized to this manager who was playing both sides. Verse 11 encapsulates the whole purpose of this parable, though, where it says, Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you true riches? This is really what this choice is all about. In God, finding out where our heart is. Is our heart kingdom-focused? Is our heart kingdom-focused? Which really what Christ was talking about back when he first introduced this topic on the Sermon on the Mount. Yesterday afternoon, I get a call from work. As I'm making my way home from being away this week, I was away since Monday, driving out through the U.S. on some uh, customer visits, uh, similar to what I had done two weeks ago. So I had spent a couple of weeks away from home making customer visits. And I got a call from work telling me that I needed to be in Mississauga this coming week, Monday and Tuesday. 
as part of a follow-up to these series of travels that I've been doing for the last two weeks. Which I was told I also needed to do. So from Friday, Monday to Friday, sometimes on Sundays, not on Sabbath, but from Monday to Friday, my freedom is quite restricted. I got a call from someone at work and said, you need to be in Mississauga on Monday and Tuesday. I don't want to drive to Mississauga. I typically work four kilometers from home. I don't have to battle any traffic. I'm close to my home. I can help help out the family if I need to. But I was told in no uncertain terms, we need you in Mississauga on Monday and Tuesday. My freedom is very restricted being an employee. In fact, I have very little. They pay me to do a job, and they tell me when and where I need to be. I'm told where I need to be. I'm told what I need to do. I'm told how to dress. I'm told who to speak to. I'm told when to eat. And yet I do so willingly. I willingly allow my freedom to be restricted. Let's go to Exodus 21. Let's go to Exodus 21. As Israel was coming out of indentured service to Egypt, and God was taking that next step with his covenant people, having started some 400 years before with Abraham, we see as part of his law, law concerning service. Law concerning masters and servants. The Ten Commandments, again, Exodus chapter 20, but the the law that they signed up for, the, the the Decalogue followed by some deeper explanation in chapters 21 through 23, and then they signed off on it and committed to this covenant in chapter 24. This concept of service is so ingrained in part of, of how we do things that it required a separate section of the law. And we see that here beginning in verse 1. Now these are the judgments, Exodus 21 verse 1, which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years. So this is a member of the covenant community purchasing a member, another member of the covenant community. These aren't. This isn't different peoples. This is people of the same covenant community. If you, as a member of the covenant community, buy another member of the covenant community, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free, and the master himself shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. And if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. 
If she does not please her master who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt deceitfully with her. And if he has, if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the customs of daughters. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. And if he does not do these three for her, he doesn't do all of these three things, then she shall go out free without paying money. Now, a lot of detail there that we really don't, and the purpose isn't to get into, into that. But both of these parties were part of the covenant community. This was part of the economics of the time. God never actually outlawed servitude. Rather, he made us part of it. It's so important that he made us part of his covenant law rules on how each party should treat each other. What was incumbent upon the master and his relationship with his, with his servants? What was incumbent upon a servant, member of the community, and how to treat his master? And, and as we see here, there were limitations on this. Anytime any man over the course of history has not followed these principles laid out by God for a godly master-servant relationship, evil has ensued. We see what God outlined here for healthy, a healthy master-servant relationship. They are purchased only for six years, and then they have an out option. They can choose to stay and serve in perpetuity, much like I choose to have my time restricted and being told what to do and where to go and when to eat and who to speak to and how to dress, I willingly show up every day in perpetuity and allow that to happen. Female servants had an, had an additional particular, as we read, and could be redeemed. And remember that these laws here in chapter 21, underlying all of this was the law of the Jubilee, which Deacon Jan talked to us a few months back about in detail in Leviticus 25 and how that addresses slavery in the context of Jubilee. In Deuteronomy 15, we don't need to go there, but it is repeated again as part of the retelling of the law to the second generation of Israelites. This is why I continue to allow my time to be dictated to me. I like it there. I like it there. For the most part, and in the context of being able to provide for my family and being able to serve God, I like it there. I like it enough to show up every day and have my activities dictated to me within the concept and the context of God's law and being able to serve him and my family. But I'm not really free. I'm not really free. I would much rather drive the four kilometers that I typically drive from home to work or work from home, or work half the time that I do. There's a whole lot of what I would love to do. That's not part of the master-servant relationship that I have with my employers. And on Monday and Tuesday, I'll be going to Mississauga just as I was directed to. Let's go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And as you turn there, the Apostle Paul wrote 14 epistles. He 
we see them here. These aren't listed. These aren't in the our version of the canon, the King James or New King James Bible. They're not in chronological order, but they are here in the order that they are preserved for us. And of these 14 epistles, the Apostle Paul, in introducing himself four times, only four, refers to himself, introduces himself as a bondservant or as a prisoner. In all other cases, he addresses himself, introduces himself as an apostle. In a couple of cases, in, to the Thessalonians, in both letters to uh, the Thessalonians, he just introduces himself by name, and I think he was with a couple of individuals as well. But four times, he specifically addresses himself as a slave, as a bondservant, or as a prisoner. Interestingly enough, that only happened in the last 10 years of his writings, beginning in AD 57 when he wrote to the Romans. The next time is in AD 62, five years later when he wrote to the Philippians. Then that same year, he wrote to Philemon, personal letter, and referred to himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And finally, Titus, four years later, just a year before he died, was martyred. He again referred to himself as a bondservant. This is quite telling that as Paul matured in his ministry, as he approached what was a long years of service to God and service as an apostle, that in the last 10 years, in four of his letters, he introduced himself as a, as a slave of Jesus Christ, as a bondservant. We see that here in Romans chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So Paul here, in his long treatise here to the Romans, introduces himself as a slave or a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And it makes, as we go, and we're going to go through these four, these four examples, because it makes sense why Paul in his maturity would see himself as a slave of Christ, as a bondservant. And here in this treatise here to the Romans, this is an in-depth writing on what it means to really be a follower of Christ, what it really means to follow Jesus Christ, understanding that as we follow Christ, we still grapple with our humanity. That inner desire to serve the self. That is then contrasted with our choice to follow God by accepting the sacrifice of his son. To become part of the covenant community. And then living a life worthy of that calling. And that's Paul takes us through this whole concept of what it means to sin and the impact that sin has on our lives and what it does to separate us from God and how our, our inner humanity is this inner struggle to choose whether to serve the self or serve God. And it culminates in chapter 12 in this letter where Paul acknowledges and introduces himself as a slave. It culminates 
and he transitions out of the theoretical in the first ten chapters, followed by this discussion on how to continue living in this world, knowing you now serve the God of Israel, and this this concept of being added back into Israel. And in the last five chapters, he really makes that transition from theoretical to practical. And it begins here in chapter 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you're present, that you're, that you're present, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So he starts out by saying, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. All that I do, I do at his behest. And then when he takes us through this theory, he now, he now transitions this thought to say, we must do the same. Followers of Jesus Christ sacrifice themselves for him and for others. And it is, it is, but, it is but the minimum requirement, a reasonable service. And how what's important here is the renewing of the mind, this transition from serving mammon, serving the self, serving our own needs, to serving God and being this service servant to him and his people. But it makes sense that Paul understood in his maturity that he was a slave, a slave of Christ. Let's go to Philippians chapter 1. That's the second book that Paul acknowledges that he is a slave. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, slaves of Jesus Christ. Not just Paul, but Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ. This letter, as we know, we've studied it many times, is to a very mature congregation, very mature, one that was a crown in Paul's eye. Which, while very mature, still had was still having an issue within the membership that needed resolution before they were ready to take their next step in the walk. And that was putting on the mind of Christ. But they were such a mature congregation that they were ready for this concept of putting on the mind of Christ. And this culminates... In his writing here in chapter 2, very familiar passage. We're very familiar with this. But this passage was made possible because of their maturity as a, as a group. Let nothing, verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interest of others. And let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. To be Christ-like means to give your life in service to him and his people. And we see here, 
Paul is using, never mind him. He starts up by using himself and Timothy as an example. We are slaves of Jesus Christ. So we're going to ask you to do some things, but it's not something unlike that unjust manager, that unjust steward who couldn't be bothered to do what he was asking his slaves to do. I couldn't do the begging. I'm not in good enough shape to do the work. Here Paul is saying, listen, we're bondservants. We're slaves of Christ, both Timothy and I. Not only are we, but Jesus Christ here is the ultimate bondservant. That he came and divested himself of his, his deity, his godliness, and came, took upon the form of man and sacrificed himself. What he's asking us to do, the church, is to become like-minded, like-minded, and to, and to, to adopt that concept of servitude. Let's go to Philemon. Philemon is the third book that Paul introduces himself as a slave. In this case, with a little more description here, as a prisoner. Not only is he a slave, he's a prisoner of Jesus Christ. The first verse of Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And Timothy, our brother. Obviously, he was in prison, but he was not referring to just being in a physical prison. But here he was an indentured servant, a slave, a lifelong slave in in service to Jesus Christ. Again, in Paul's maturity as he has has gone further in his putting on the mind of Christ, addressing himself rather than as an apostle, as a servant, a bondservant, a prisoner, makes sense here in his letter to Philemon. This personal letter to an old friend in an appeal to reconciliation on behalf of a slave, another slave, who went AWOL, who just disappeared. And in his absence, found Christ, found Christ, and developed an attitude of helpfulness and became helpful to Paul. But reconciliation, because it was in accordance with the slave laws, needed to be made right. So Paul reached out as a as a slave to appeal to Philemon as a master. But he did it from a not as an apostle, but he did it as a prisoner, from an from a concept of a of prisoner. And we see here in verse eight, this letter culminates here with, therefore, verse eight of Philemon, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, I could have said I'm an apostle and just told you what you needed to do. Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. I appeal on behalf of Onesimus, the slave, because I'm a slave. I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Being such a one as Paul the aged, I'm advanced in my maturity now. I've been around the block. I see the value in this. And now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains who was once unprofitable to you, but now is, now is profitable to you and to me. So while, he said, while I could have started out this letter proclaiming my apostleship and said, here's what you're going to do. You're going to do this because I'm telling you so. I'm appealing to you as a prisoner. 
as a physical prisoner, as a prisoner of Jesus Christ, on behalf of a fellow prisoner who has given his life to Christ, to do the right thing, to reconcile, and to make this right so he can be of better service to me, to God, and to his people. The fourth one, let's go to Titus. Titus is interesting. Titus is one of Paul's protégés. He had many. He wrote to two, to Timothy and to Titus. Timothy, he referred to himself as an apostle. Timothy was his, appears to be his closest protégé. He calls him his son. But Titus, in a similar letter, at a similar time, written just a little before his letters to Timothy, but around the same time, he refers to himself in chapter 1 and verse 1 of Titus as a bond servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he refers to himself as both, takes on the authority of an apostle because he's now he's going to be teaching Titus about ministry. But he adds this concept of being a bondservant and a slave of God. This was a personal letter of guidance to one of his protégés, understanding that Paul needed his service in an area where he likely didn't want to be. He had sent Titus to Crete. Titus wasn't from Crete, but Paul, in developing the ministry and in developing congregations, saw that there was a need in Crete, and he sent Titus to Crete. You need to go to Crete, and you need to, and we see it here, we see this described for us in verse 5, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. And then he proceeds to describe in detail what these lacking things are and how to go about setting them right and in order. But when you think about it, to connect with Titus, to really get down to the, the nitty-gritty of this and explain to him what needed to be done and that there was a reason why he was sending him to Crete. Remember that Crete was known as that a lying people. You can see that down. One, one of them, uh, verse 12, one of them, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. The, the Cretans had a reputation, and Titus, of all the places to be, he got sent to this island of these, uh, these lazy gluttons, these evil beasts, and these lying people. And as a young protege, there could have been, you know, why me? Timothy gets to go to Ephesus and gets to go here, and you're sending me to Crete. Paul connects with him by saying, we're both fellow slaves here. When we, when we give our lives to God in Jesus Christ, we become bondservants of his. And sometimes that requires going to where we don't really want to go because there's work to be done there. But he needed him there to set the congregation straight. So we see Paul had this concept of servitude. And especially as he got into his later years, as he's described there as the aged, Paul the aged, I think he refers to himself in one of those letters we just read. So he understood this concept of servitude. Let's go back to Genesis 2. Genesis 2. 
as we look at this concept of freedom in Christ. And again, we've touched on, it seems like we haven't left Genesis all year. Uh, we keep going back to Genesis for various reasons. We're going to go back to Genesis 2 here and pick it up in verse 13. Sorry, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Look around. Every tree here you can eat from. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Every tree you can freely eat. Eat to your heart's content, except, except. So then they weren't really free, were they? Have your fill of whatever you want, but were they really free? Verse 25. Then they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And I draw our attention to that. Because they were at peace. They were mentally at peace. There was no stress. There was no, there was no hiding. There was no, no two-mindedness or double-mindedness or living two, two different ways. They were at peace. Genesis 3. Moving on in the story, verse 7. We'll fast forward through the cunning of the serpent in the first few verses we'll get down to where Adam and Eve changed. Where this choice, where they adopted pure freedom, they took upon themselves pure freedom and said, you know what, I get that we can eat of everything but this one. We're going to adopt true freedom, and we're going to eat of this one tree. We're going to eat of, of this one tree that you said not to. Then the eyes of, and we've covered this in other aspects before, this, this part of the, the story. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden on, in the cool of the day. And Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Imprisoned by guilt and shame. They hid, them from, they hid themselves, and they hid from God. So did the one forbidden tree really provide the freedom they thought it was going to provide? They had pure freedom except for one, and they said, you know what, we're going to take upon ourselves complete freedom, and we're going to eat of this one tree. And they changed. Then they became not free. They became imprisoned by their own shame and guilt. So much so that they hid from God and they hid themselves. So is freedom really free? Is freedom really free? Now we fast forward in the story to verse 24. Where they are now driven from the garden. So he drove out the man and placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden. And a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. 
They have complete freedom, complete mental peace, ease of movement in paradise, except for one tree they're not allowed to eat. They take upon this choice of themselves and say, we're going to take full freedom for ourselves. We are, we are going to be truly free. We will not be restricted. We will eat that. We will eat from that tree too. It changed their mindset to where they were filled with guilt and shame and became prisoners of, them, of their own actions. And then they became restricted from the one place they had always called home. Now they couldn't even be there anymore. Go anywhere you like, God says. You want your freedom? Go anywhere you like now. Except here, except where it has always been home to you. Have all, have all the freedom you like, except the one place you really want to be. So is freedom really free? Is our concept, is man's concept of having full choice and full freedom, is it really free? Does God's way provide freedom? Let's go to chapter 12. Let's go to chapter 12. Again, basic scriptures, Just we're going to look at them from in this light of freedom and servitude. This is the part of the introduction of the covenant with Abraham. And the very first part of the covenant restricts freedom. Get out of your country, verse 1, from your family and from your father's house. Really? That's, that restricts my freedom. I've always lived here. This is where my family is. This is where I've made my money. This is where I've made my business. And now the first thing God says, we're going to be in covenant together, I'm going to restrict your freedom. Leave where you're comfortable at. Leave where you've always been. The first part of this covenant restricts freedom. Leave your home. Stop being where you're comfortable, where you've grown up where your family is, and go. If you want to follow me, there are restrictions, God says. So is it really free? It doesn't seem to be free. It doesn't seem, when we, when we look at it from this perspective, it doesn't seem to be freedom. There seem to be restrictions. Let's go to Leviticus 26. This is repeated in Deuteronomy 28, again, because this is the first generation of Israelites. The second generation had the law re-given to them, given to them again through the book of Deuteronomy before they were to cross over into the promised land. But we see here the, bless, the, the chapter here known as the blessings and the cursings. And the first 13 verses, we won't take time to read them, God lays out his expectations for his covenant people. You want to be part of the covenant, here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to do. If you walk in my commandments, verse 3, and keep my, walk in my statutes, keep my commandments, and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce, and the trees of the field shall yield, yield their fruit. And he continues to show all of the blessings that will result in following God's instructions. Verse 14, we change course here. And God describes for us the cursings. What will happen if we choose not to? 
if we choose not to follow his instructions. If you do not obey me, verse 14, and do not observe all of these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments, that you do not perform all my commandments but break my covenant, I will also do this to you, colon, and then he lists everything that could be done to him. Then, let's just get the let's get how God is, is talking here through Moses to his people. Verse 18, and after all this, if you do not obey me, after all I've already said, if you still don't obey me, and then he gives more conditions, more, more uh, cursings. Verse 21, then, after this, if you still were walking contrary to me, and you're not willing to obey me. Then verse 23, and if by these things you're not reformed by me, if these, this punishment and these cursings don't change who you are, if you're still not reformed, and then he proceeds to list more things out. And then verse 27, sounding half exasperated here, and after all this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. So he lays out his expectations. And then he proceeds to tell them, if you don't follow these, this is what's going to happen. Some choice. Some choice. So I follow you, and I have to do all of these things. If I don't follow you, all of these bad things are going to result. Some choice. Some choice. Is it really free? Is it really freedom? Deuteronomy 30. We had just spoken, just sort of touched on the fact that this was to the second generation of Israelites before they enter the promised land. Where Caitlin read earlier today, after rehashing these same warnings of blessings and cursings to the second generation of Israelites, God explains what freedom really is here. He explains the freedom that they have. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. What God has presented to his people, and what God presents to his people, is the freedom to choose. Freedom to choose. Freedom to opt in or to opt out. That is where we are completely free. Free to choose who we serve. Let's go to Romans 7. I mentioned that Paul began teaching this concept of slavery well into his ministry. At least what we have in, on the written record. 
well into his ministry. Romans written in the late 50s, A.D., 57 or so. This concept of slavery requires a mature outlook on life. Requires a, a mature outlook on life. On a mature outlook on God's plan and our place in it. Let's read chapter 7, verse 21 to 25. We're just going to read here. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. As a converted person, I want to do what is right. But when I succumb to my to my inner human feelings, I become captive to myself. I become captive to myself, to what he describes as the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this physical body of death, this physical body that as hard as my, my, my mind uh, in conjunction and married up with God's Holy Spirit wants to do what is right, the physical, the physical person still makes these choices. That, that enslaves me to myself. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice, frees us from ourselves. So then, with the mind, finishing up the thought here, so then, with the, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Christ taught us in Matthew and in Luke that we can't serve more than one. But we're as as human beings, we are required to we are required to choose, and we have the freedom to choose. But we have the freedom to choose who to serve. We serve ourselves, which in essence is really serving the adversary, serving our inner feelings, our inner desire, or we choose to serve God and him and his people. But with the mind, the human mind, blessed to be paired up with the Holy Spirit, we serve, we continue to serve God. So we're not really free. We're not really free. But we're free to choose who we serve. We're free to choose who we serve. Once we make that choice to opt in, we become servants of God. Let's go to Romans 14. We're closing in another five or so minutes. Romans 14. Again, this is deep stuff that Paul goes through here. We're just going to cut into this a little bit here in verse 7. For none of us, Romans 14, verse 7, none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be both Lord of both the dead and the living. Christ died that we might have an opportunity to choose to live again. That we might have an opportunity to choose to live again. To choose to be allowed back into paradise. Back into his kingdom. That we 
through sin have been banished from. But in doing so, we stop living for self and we live for God. We become servants of God. Completely free. Completely free to live within the confines of his law. Which this section of scripture will then dive into a little deeper. We don't have time for that today. But completely free to live within the confines of God's law when we choose to opt in to this plan of salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5. We have complete freedom to choose who we will serve. We also have the freedom to stay. We have the freedom to stay. Here, let's go to 1 Thessalonians 5. Verse 12, we urge you, brethren, we went over, we did a message on 1 Thessalonians 5 recently, just before the feast. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12, we urge you, brethren. Verse 14, we exhort you, brethren. And then in continuing in this same area, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good and abstain from every form of evil. We have the freedom to choose and we have the freedom to stay with God. Revelation 22. As we look forward to the fulfillment of God's plan, we see part of what we will be as first fruits, part of what we will be part of. Revelation 22, verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life. Remember, we were banished from the tree of life, now if we freely choose to opt in, keep his commandments, we will have the right to have access to the tree of life. We may enter through the gates into the city, but outside, outside, prevented from being part of this, are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Those who think, you can't restrict my freedom through law. You're not going to restrict my freedom by telling me what I can't do. Ultimately, we'll have their freedom completely restricted to the point of death. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. The rivers of living water are free to anyone who thirsts and wants relief. And we are told anyone can come and drink freely of these waters. Drink until you are completely satisfied. Drink to your heart's content. Back up to chapter 21. Another freedom that awaits us. 
Verse 1 of 21, chapter 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Freedom from death, freedom from pain, and freedom from loss awaits anyone who chooses to freely give their life to Christ. Let's finish back in Joshua 24. Is God's way truly free? That all depends on whose definition you're looking at. God certainly, as creator, defines the parameters of what freedom and happiness are. And we see here Joshua opting in. Joshua here opts in. As a leader of his people, he has taught them what he can teach them, and now he can't select for them. He can only select for himself. He can't select for his people. And we see that here. God can't select for us, and and our leaders can't select for us. Joshua couldn't select for his people. Moses couldn't select for his people. Verse 14, now therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, if your concept of freedom is misguided, and you think that true freedom is doing whatever you want, despite all the warnings of the Creator as to what doing anything you want could mean, if it seems wrong to you to choose to serve God, then choose. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But we must choose one. There's no, there's no freedom from service. But we, we are allowed and encouraged and begged to choose who we serve. If it seems evil to you to this day to serve the Lord, choose yourselves this day whom you will serve. But you must choose. There will come a time when you must choose whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But Joshua here says, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We are choosing God to serve. Is God's way really a way of freedom? Yes. We are completely free to choose happiness, completely free to choose truly abundant living, completely free to choose peace of mind, completely free to choose forgiveness from sin, and completely free to choose eternal life. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.